Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash God is Gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Hi beautiful, beautiful people. people. Today we have a podcast with Josh Scott. He is the leader of Grace Point Church in Nashville. Hello, Josh. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to have you because one of the members of our beautiful God is Great community reached out to me and they were like, I know you've been having trouble finding a genuinely quote progressive church. And I found one online. She's been like, I think listening to the sermons online and I'm blown away because I hadn't seen a church like actually embrace that term progressive mm-hmm. Christianity and put it on your website and be like, this is what we are. And this is what we are affirming. So could you tell us like a little bit about Grace Point Church, what you guys are all about? Yeah, so Grace Point has been around for around 16 years, I think. Mm -hmm. And I uh, joined up, became the lead pastor there in 2019. Um, And Grace Point's journey really made a big splash in 2015 when um, they came out for marriage equality and decided to become a completely open and affirming church so that um, LGBTQ plus folks would have the full rights of membership, including marriage and uh, baby dedications and baptisms and all those sorts of things. And so the journey of Grace Point from that point on was um, to begin to lean into not just the affirming aspect of theology, but to lean into progressive theology, which was a radical sort of uh, reframing and rethinking of a lot of the the narrative that most of us, especially in the South here in the Bible Belt that we grew up with. Yeah. It's been, you know, I've been associated with Grace Point and uh, friends with them and around the community since about 2014, right before they went through this journey. So even though I'm new, I've had an interesting seat to just watch the whole thing as as it's unfolded. And it's been really, it's been challenging, but it's also been really beautiful in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I really want to dive into the progress that the church itself has made, as well as a little bit about your personal journey, because obviously they're going to be intertwined as you're the lead pastor there. And you're saying you made a big splash because you guys were actually featured in Time magazine when you came out as this fully affirming church in 2015. Yeah. 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 Did you experience or the church experienced a lot of backlash in that moment or death threats or community hate or anything like that? Um, So, you know, uh, the lead pastor at the time then was the founding pastor, Stan Mitchell. And uh, I I do feel, obviously there was some pushback. Um, I remember being in the office one night um, visiting with him and they played the messages that were on the answering machine. Oh. It was was rough. (laughs) So obviously people left, right? Also, there are people who came. Um, because they were being welcomed, not just welcomed, because, you know, churches, every time I drive by a church sign, it says everybody is welcome. I, I really want to stop and go in, and I, I have a list of questions 
that I need to ask you before we can find out if this is true or not. So not just welcomed, but fully affirmed and embraced. Yeah. Well, give me a little, what is that list of questions? I mean, well, to saying everybody's welcome, anybody can come in the door and give us their money and we'll count them as a number. But the real question is, what is the barrier? Like if somebody in the LGBTQ plus community comes into the church, can they serve in leadership? Right. Can they give a Sunday sermon? Can they volunteer with the children's ministry? You know, what are the things, if there's any barrier to what somebody can do, then we're really not talking about affirmation. We're, we're talking about some sort of bait and switch, which is really unfortunate because it happens all the time. Yeah, I'm, my friend Grace Baldridge, she uh, does these beautiful think pieces for Refinery29. It's like a doc series, and she did one about churches that do that bait and switch. Um, we're, all, we're both in Los Angeles, so we're talking about super hip, cool churches in progressive city of Los Angeles. And um, that's another reason I was stunned when I read your address on your website, and I was like, Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> like we're talking about the South. Because I can't even find a church here that actually is all-inclusive and considers itself progressive at the same time. And I can tell you from my experience, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, that people consider progressive Christianity not a valid form of seeking doctrine and seeking God and and figuring out your journey. So... I kind of want to just get into why you do believe it's valid as a church and how you are approaching that entire system and, and like kind of really leading the way, I would say even nationwide on how this is done. I don't know how many people are like looking at your model and seeking that out, but it's something brand new. So I really want to hear from you how you're actually approaching this. So before we get into all of that, I'd love to know, this church was founded in 20 or 2003. So it's not until 2015 that they are stepping into full affirmation of LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. It was so, in January, actually, of, in January of, of 2015. But okay. The conversation had been going on for a few years. They were, they were in conversation about it. And that was sort of the day when they just said, hey, this is where we are and this is who we're going to be. Well, New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, do you know what kind of history they had before then? Were they more, were they ever affirming themselves? Did the, did Stan himself have to go on a journey of affirmation? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and what typically happens in, in communities is that the, the leadership go through the journey way before they start talking about it right. with people. So I don't know when he started that. Uh, I know for me, when I finally started talking about my perspective on this, um, you know, I, I became a pastor full-time. Well, I mean, this actually this month makes 20 years that I've been a pastor, like on a staff. That was my thing. But when I became a lead pastor for the first time, uh, I was going through deconstruction. And so my sermons were really rough because, you know, you just sometimes end with, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. what I, I have no idea. So, uh, you know, but being able to invite people into that journey is important. So I don't know for, for Stan when that started, but I do know that um, by the time that it became public that this is what the church was going to do, there was a strong conviction that, you know, sort of the here I stand, I can do no other. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah, that's really amazing. My heart always goes out to pastors and leaders and even people that write a book and go on tour and have to like 
espouse this message that they've formed at some former time as the absolute truth. And pastors aren't like bloggers in the way that you can just openly be like, hey, I'm on a journey. I'm confused about X, Y, and Z because you're supposed to be who everyone is looking up to. But then at the same time, you're fallible human beings. And I believe in, and I mean, no, I guess that that's why so many pastors fall into sexual scandal or monetary scandal, et cetera. So I can only imagine how difficult that would be. Like, did you basically, are you saying that you were like secretly going through this journey on your own or you were outwardly being like, I'm confused about this? I, I started, <laughs> yeah, I started talking about it outwardly. I just couldn't contain it. Um, how did people react to that? Uh, so here's what's interesting is there were different groups of people. There was a group of people, and of course I'm doing this in rural Kentucky. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> in, in a denominational church, right? So uh, back then, uh, there were people who were like, "Man, this is exactly what I needed. I'm asking these same questions. Let's lean into it. Let's talk about it." There were people who were like, "This is wrong and it's heresy." And then you had this group in the middle who uh, always had a friend who says, it's not the first time you say it, it's like the 10th time or the 100th time you say it, and then they really get what you mean, and that's when they leave. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you can do things, like I think in the beginning, I was saying things in a way that the people who wanted to take it as as more progressive could, but it was also with enough terms and enough finesse that people who wanted to take it as the same old thing could like they, and eventually I had to decide that that's unfair to both groups. And so I just need to say what's, what I think is true and what I think was kind of burning inside and then let the, let the chips fall, let the results be what they are. Yeah. What kind of things were you, what kind of questions were you having in your head at that time? Well, I mean, one of them was on, you know, uh, being affirming of LGBTQ plus um, people but that was just sort of one thing that ended up for me opening up um, a whole litany of things, like talking about um, atonement and what does the cross mean and what do we mean by the resurrection and what about the virgin birth? Oh, and wow. Like You're going those, for it. Yeah. Yeah. Just all <laughs> those sorts of things um, were, you know, it was, a, it was a process, right? Like I was at that church 14 years and um, what's interesting is when I started at Grace Point, somebody said, man, you've got 14 years worth of sermons you can just re-preach. And I'm like, absolutely not. If you'd been around for those 14 years, you would know that there's, I can't even preach stuff I did last year because everything's come to continually moving in, in some way. Wow. Yeah, so I'd love to share with the God is a Great community your former journey before becoming lead pastor of Grace Point. You were invited or called to change this rural Kentucky church from non-denominational, which I know most of us evangelicals, Baptists, et cetera, know that non-denominational is like code for very strict, you know, fundamentalist kind of doctrine. Um, But you were in charge of transitioning from a fundamentalist view to a more progressive view. Yeah. And to, you know, the church didn't ask me to do that. That just is where I was. Um, and what started happening for me. And there was a real, there was a time in 2015 when I knew that I was going to have to really start saying some things that were going to be controversial, not because I wanted to create controversy, but because I, I just felt like that it was just to say what's true. I need to say these things. And we had, we had elders. That was the name of the leadership. Um, 
and I brought them into a room and um, I said, look, here's, I laid everything out. Like, here's where I'm at. I, I understand that this may not be the journey that um, this church is going to take, but this is the journey I have to take. So if you want me to resign, I'll resign right now and you guys can find somebody else. And to a person, they said, no, we believe this is our journey and we're going to take it together. Wow. Um, now, a lot of those people didn't make the journey. <laughs> um, yeah. But to their, to their credit, you know, I laid, I laid everything out and then they were still willing to give it a, a shot. So I'm pretty grateful for that. Wow. Do you remember the first sermon or the first moment you publicly said something that scared you to say? I've never been that smart, I don't think. Um, but I, I, I sort of have just said, said the thing and then later realized, oh, that was for them. That was not, that was not, nor, that wasn't a normal thing for me to say it for them. That was somehow poking and prodding around these, you know, these sacred things we're not allowed to talk about or question. We just have to accept them as they are. Right. And, I mean, I usually would know based on the, the way my email inbox looked the next day or the phone calls I got. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we, the, the, we invited a, a speaker who's um, a Christian speaker, writer, who's an incredible progressive Christian. And that was the first time when people really started online. I mean, the online reaction to that in our little small town was intense like way intense. Uh, what was the, the message on? Um, well, he, it was just his presence. Um, and oh. he's, he's brilliant and a dear friend. And um, that's really how we ended up getting outed on marriage equality was inviting him to town. And then people were, started asking, wait, so when you've been saying this, you really meant this? It's like, yeah, I really meant it. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, though, the thing I got in the most trouble for that – was criticizing the president, um, Trump. Uh, I, I said some things online that really just blew up. You don't like him? I'm not a fan. <laughs> not a fan. Um, yeah, it's crazy that he's actually literally been propped up as like synonymous with Jesus, like literally at this point. And it's, it's so beyond me. It's so wild. I like choose... I try not to get political on the channel because it is so, um, it's a divisive thing for divisive. sure. Yeah, I'm like, my brain is dead from not sleeping that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> <do> yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those things that's so divisive and it does, it's not even valuable to me anymore to divide us with the subject of Donald Trump, because I hope that it becomes irrelevant at some point, or I hope that we can move past him and just push him aside and be like, okay, that's not even what we're talking about. We're talking about things that are much bigger because he won't last as no president lasts. Like Obama is just, you know, something in the distance as well. And one day Donald Trump will be too. So it doesn't seem worth it to alienate people based on, you know, their political stance. But then those issues become prevalent when we're talking about a woman's right to choose and, can trans people serve in the military? And, you know, he touches on all of these things that religious people are completely entrenched in just in our day to day. What were the things that you found you needed to speak out about when it came to him? Um, you know, the first thing I did on the day after the election was I just wrote on my blog an open letter um, to the, Donald Trump. And I was just asking, I basically was just saying, look, the election's over. You're going to be the new president. Please think about doing or not doing these things. 
think about how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, those kind of things. And then when he issued the first, um, what they called the Muslim ban. Right. Um, I wrote a blog, art, a blog post about that and just how wrong I felt like it was. And that's where, I mean, I had people taking pictures of themselves, holding firearms, sending it to me. It was, it was a whole thing. Oi. Um, do you know, or could you explain why that's so triggering to Christians? Why we're supposed to be on the side of the Muslim ban? Uh, you know, w- one of the sad things I think is that many, many people who are in the Christian camp, especially in conservative Christianity, are, aren't really interested in freedom of religion. They just want freedom of their religion. Yeah. And they want everybody else to sort of have to just have their, you know, their version of Christianity just sort of shoved, shoved in their face all the time. Um, and I think that comes from a sense of really ultimately, when I, when I see people acting the way that is, I, I see people who are, who no matter how much power they have, they feel really powerless and there's a lot of fear wrapped up in it. And it ultimately, that's what fear does, right? Fear says we've got to name the bad guy and we've got to get distance from the bad guy. And the problem is, is no matter who you eventually you'll end up banning yourself. Um, but because there aren't enough people around you, you know, you just, it, it's this group and then this group and then this group. Um, and so I feel like it's healthier to ask, why is it that I'm afraid? What am I afraid of? And is that fear valid in the sense of, is it grounded in any reality or is it something I've, you know, sort of created? And I think a lot of times it's stuff we create to be afraid of. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm looking at the tenants of your church now, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And you have online our beliefs at our core grace point holds to these principles with open hands and humility. Love that word. Love that principle. One God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah. So when we, when I think about God and, and to be fair, if you were to come to grace point and sit down, you would maybe get a couple hundred different opinions on what the word God means, right? Like there's, there's not, so it partly means that, that when we talk about God, whatever the word God means, and I often will say that in a sermon, like whatever the word God means, um, because that's a big, big category. Um, it, we, we want to embrace the mystery of it. Um, it's not something that we conquer and then uh, sort of put in a trophy case and say, this is what God is, but that we're continually learning. And the best way to, for, for me at least, the best way to experience the divine isn't through doctrinal principles, but it's through, you know, loving and compassionate interaction with other human beings. And, and when you begin with God as a mystery and not these four doctrinal points, it gives you a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, room to expand when you learn something new. Um, something new is the thing we were never supposed to learn growing up, right? Because everything that we need to know about God is, is way back there. Um, and our ancestors throughout the scripture, you, you see them learning new things and leaving behind old ways of thinking and embracing new ones. I think that that's one of the great things about the Bible is that it shows even people like Paul, they change their mind as they go. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. So staying open, staying flexible, not to just embrace any old thing, but when we feel when, when we're being invited into the, another level of mystery, another experience where our understanding of God grows and expands, um, we want to make sure we're prepared and open to that. 
Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Pete Enns? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That just reminds me of the way Pete Enns explains it as well. And two questions. One, I'm curious, could you explain what you mean by saying whatever God means? I, I, <clears throat> I think the word God for lots and lots of people has so much baggage and it's so fraught that I, I don't know that, that for some people, it, like just putting that word away. And, not, and so, you know, maybe you want to use the word love. Maybe you want to use the word reality. Maybe you want to use the word ground of being, the phrase ground of being. There are lots of different ways to talk about this experience, this reality, whatever, that um, pulses through everything. And so I think giving people, another phrase I use a lot, especially in a Bible story, if I'm teaching a story, is the character God, the character named God. Because in the Bible, we're never really given God. We are giving God through the filter and lens of our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors. And so they at times put things onto God that I think after this time we've moved ahead, we've learned new things. We realized that those things were never, you know, it was never really what God was about. God was never wanting us to, to act in certain ways. So I think it's, it's helpful because it gives people on ramps. Um, there are people who love the word God and they'll cling to that word forever and ever and more power to them. But also we want to give people who are deeply spiritual and have a, have a sense of wonder and awe and mystery. We don't want that three letter word to be something that, that prevents them from growing and experiencing their own journey of transformation. So, you know, I think language is flexible. Yeah. And if it is flexible, is that disrespectful to the divine to abandon the word God? I, I don't think, you know, it's like, that's not whatever the word God is. It's not God's name, right? Like that's a category we have. Um, you know, it'd be like, instead of, you know, if you have a dog and your dog's name is Bob, and, but you don't just call it, you know, call it dog, you call it Bob, right? So <laughs> whatever, however that works, like if the divine has a name, uh, lots of different cultures have named it in the scriptures. There are certain names given to the divine. I think whatever that reality is, it is far more generous and far more forgiving and far more kind and not really caught up. I, I do not believe that what, that God really sits around going, I just wish they would make me a bigger deal. <laughs> really? You know I mean, I don't like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a parent uh, and you're a parent and here's the thing. I, I never sit around going, man, I just wish my kids would praise me more and tell me how awesome I am. Because <laughs> no, no, the, the best thing my kids can do is to live a life that is joyous and loving and kind and that, that they would flourish and enjoy the time they have in the world. Yeah, I think, um, I think I've never thought of it that way. And I really love that because it's true. I was just thinking like, how could my child worship me or tell me that I'm amazing? And the way he could tell me that I'm amazing is if he lived out divine principles. If I saw him opening the door for an old lady, if I see him, you know, giving someone a hug that's crying, those would be the moments where I would feel or that I would imagine God would feel his children are living acts of worship out to the mm -hmm. divine. When you're expressing that love in a tangible way, that shows your character through your child. So why would it be any different if we're children of God? Right. And you think about it, like what we've turned it into is let's all go in a room and turn on the fog machine and we'll sing some songs about how great God is. <laughs> yeah. 
then we'll go out and do whatever we want to other people without any sort of consideration for whether or not, like, what does this ultimately say? If we worship the divine, then we go out into the world and we act in ways that are hostile and, and mean-spirited. And, and that that's sending out a different sort of message. Uh, you know, I think right now when people hear the word evangelical, lots and lots of people cringe. And it's because of what is being perpetuated in the world by that by that particular label. So, yeah, I think that God is, so there's, uh, you know, the, I've been thinking about the scripture recently where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I thought, I, was, I read this by uh, Irenaeus, I think it's Irenaeus, but Irenaeus says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Mm. And if you allow that to, t- to sort of critique what Paul's saying, like, what if our, what if the way we've fallen short is by not being fully alive human beings? What if it's, failing to live into our divine potential, failing to take that seriously and then embody that in the world. Um, oh, you're drawing up so many thoughts for me and I love that because that, that brings you to your second core belief, which is life is a gift to be enjoyed. And the way people hold themselves back, like for example, I did this um, this video on John MacArthur versus Beth Moore and how he told women they need to sit down and there's this pastor... Uh, Dale Partridge that has, you know, he's leading home churches where women are supposed to be in full submission, et cetera. And um, I found on Instagram, this one woman talking about when you're a woman for God, it's akin to living like a lamb to the slaughter. And you just have to put your neck Mm. back and allow them to just like cut your neck and bleed out and die in the name of your faith, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much your body screams out and says no. And I was thinking about in the shower this morning, for some reason, I was just like, that can't be true. First of all, lambs and sheep never consented to the slaughter. They were brought to the slaughter. They were invited. (laughs) Yeah. And second of all, living small, living in a way that is like the antithesis of all the things that you want to be, how can that possibly be to the glory of God? Yeah. And a God who is intimidated by you living into the fullness of who you are is not a God worth your time. That's a good point too. Is that if that's God, is that who you want to worship? Is that who you want to follow? A cruel God. Yeah. And I I just don't think it is. And I think that, that beyond that reality, uh, beyond those sort of images that we've created for God, there's a reality that really is much better than that. You know, I have, I actually have lots of friends who I, you know, from especially my time in Kentucky where, uh, who supported, whether enthusiastically or begrudgingly supported Donald Trump's candidacy. And it was really helpful to me to be able to stay in communication with them and respectful communication with them, just because there were so many things I couldn't understand about what was going on. And I think part of it is conservative Christianity has developed and bought into a narrative that they are somehow oppressed and persecuted. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the Western world, the largest persecutor of people has been conservative Christianity. I mean, you can roll it back to um, what happened here with uh, colonialism, uh, the way indigenous peoples were treated, the way, you know, African-Americans have been treated um, the slave trade, like the, all of that stuff is couched in. And so I think that when they see those, some of those values, which have been un- unknowingly bound up in 
like when people say make America great again, America hasn't been great for a lot of people ever. Right. So what they're calling back to is a time when they didn't feel like, you know, I guess like if, if you've had all of everything to yourself, like you've, you know, if you're the oldest child and you had this time with no siblings, um, and then all of a sudden you have a sibling show up and so now you're having to share and yeah. other people have, and, and then you have to decide how you're going to handle that. And I think what we see is this leaning into this, well, we're persecuted. No, we're just saying the table's bigger than you thought. And there are more people who need to be there. But I think that being able to, to speak into and challenge that narrative of persecution is really important because it's just not, it's just not reality. Well, when you spoke to those friends and tried to get in their heads with that, I would assume if you told people, hey, you're just the big kid that doesn't want to share his toys, it's not going to go over very well with those people. So like, how did they see it from their view? How did they describe it? Because like I said, I highly doubt that they would just say, oh, it's because I'm selfish and I want to keep all the cake to myself. Right, right. And, you know, for some of those people, that wasn't it. Ultimately, it came down to for a lot of people... um, Second Amendment rights, um, abortion, you know. Abortion is huge, yeah. Immigration, those kind of things. And it's just interesting. I don't know that, I think sometimes we get so lost in our own echo chambers that even when we hear something from outside, and this is something that could easily be, you know, happen to me at times too, where you are so around people who share your perspective that that you, you don't really hear what somebody else is saying. Yeah. So I, I think that finding ways and and it's not for everybody, but I think if we can be respectful and kind and nobody feels like they're being under duress or like being able to engage these conversations is really important. I think some people ended up supporting things just because that's, that's what they knew. Like this is the party I support. Right. Right. But at a macro level, I, I think that conservative Christianity, um, which was really birthed the whole fundamentals movement birthed by the enlightenment, um, is, is, has been since that moment, since people started saying, well, we can actually take these same methods and apply them to the Bible and learn how the Bible is put together. And we can start asking questions about what God means. Is, is God dead? Uh, right. Like yeah. that, that they are in a, it's, it's a continual state of defense. And I, I went through it being growing up a, you know, conservative learning how to defend the faith. Yeah. Um, if somebody needs to defend Christianity against attackers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's a whole, it's a, it's a learned experience from the time you come into the world to somehow be a defender of the faith because it's under attack. Yeah, I know. I was definitely taught the same thing. And I know that people would probably resist being called fearful because no one wants to be seen as a coward or not brave, et cetera. But I do remember feeling that way. It was all based in fear. Like if I do not condemn people for being homosexuals, then they could go to hell and I might go to hell for not informing them of that. And so that's all fear, fear, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the way fear creates reactions in our body and the release of adrenaline and cortisol, all that stuff that the stress hormones that are always, I mean, people are living in that 24, seven, 365. Yeah. And that takes not only a physical toll, it takes an emotional toll, it takes a mental toll. Um, and I think we're just living, and especially right now in this country, on, in, in, on both sides, I mean, we're just living at such a high level of anxiety 
um, I shared, uh, I started a new series and we were talking about Sabbath um, this past Sunday. And I shared the statistic that like 55% of Americans were experiencing stress and anxiety about the presidential election this year. And I was just like, what about the rest of them? <laughs> Why are the rest of them so calm? You know, so I think it's, it's, um, it's, we live with that stress on both sides and it, then it perpetuates all these narratives. And I never really thought about it before because you're just like, taught and raised to believe that we are inherently sinful we are inherently flawed and evil and we're always going to lean in that direction it was a blasphemous statement for me to hear that i am united with god and worse than that that you're telling me that i have the divine within me that it pulses through me that i exemplify that divine and that i am in myself divine because of that those messages did ring blasphemous at different times in my life. And just accepting that as true, accepting myself as inherently good and inherently godlike, you know, flips everything on its head. Do you find that it's hard for people to make that transition? Well, we, we continually try to remind all of us that we are beloved. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is not just messaging, but I think it's, it's in everything that a church does. So we don't sing music that does all that stuff you're describing. Okay. We, we don't, sing, we don't yeah. sing music that talks about how, well, God, you know, you're so sinful and God covered you in Jesus blood. And now suddenly God thinks you're okay. Yeah. Um, four or five years ago, I went to, we took our youth in from Kentucky to a youth camp and we just hadn't been able to find one. And it was, you know, traumatic event for kids to go from hearing what they hear at our church than to go hearing other things and so we go and the pastor meets with all of us leaders he's like I'm not going to scare them tonight I'm not going to do any of this stuff and he did the opposite of what he said he was going to do and he just preached this sermon and there's a kid from another youth group sitting down just weeping mm. and one of our volunteers I was just kind of within earshot and one of our volunteers nobody had gone around him so one of our volunteers did he asked him what's wrong and he said I'm just there's nothing good in me Mm. I'm unworthy and God is going to forgive me anyway. And he said, how old are you? And the kid said, I'm 11. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. How, how odd this narrative is that God is angry with you and God is going to roast you forever because you have defiled God's honor. But the good news is that instead of killing you, God is willing to kill this perfectly innocent person. Because God has to have blood. Um, that, that is not the God of Jesus. That is not the God of the Hebrew scriptures. That, that God doesn't, that's, you know, that's Molech. That's another God who uh, is demanding blood for forgiveness. I love how the Jewish prophets, uh, of, of among them Jesus, would say, mercy, not sacrifice. Mm. Right? But God's looking for mercy, not sacrifice. So this idea that somehow it's good news that God would kill somebody else besides me. Like That's not good news. Good news is the message that I'm inherently connected to God, that I am deeply beloved, and that um, I embody as an image bearer of God, I embody God in the world. Now that's good news. And so the problem isn't, you know, we always use that phrase, we mess up, like, oh, I'm just human. No, 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 no. To be human is a good thing. Mm. Right? God creates humans in the first creation story in the Bible and says it's very good. 
Mm. So to be human is a good thing. The, the problem is so often we, we take the path beneath our humanity in the way we interact with each other and live in the world. And so the, the, essentially the Christian call is not, you know, transcend your humanity. It's, it's actually, hey, step into your humanity. I've never heard of that before. What would you say is beneath our humanity? I think what, when we live in ways that are um, racist, when we live in ways that are demeaning of other human beings, when we consume, 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 and we don't think about the planet or other human beings who are starving to death. I mean, I think there are ways we live. If, if being human is sort of the benchmark for what we're meant to be, then it's any way we live beneath that flourishing. Uh, and, and the effects it has not only on other people. I mean, I think that you can make a strong case that it's not just people who are starving to death who are being affected. It's the people who are consuming everything too. Mm. Uh, it's doing something to us when we consume it all. And yeah. so I, I think there's the, the, the call of Jesus is not transcend your humanity and become divine. It's step into your humanity and find out that divinity meets you there. Mm. Uh, it's not about getting out of these bodies. These bodies are, are gifts. And I love that too, because I talk so much about um, not vilifying our bodies. And in evangelicalism, I was taught all the time that my flesh is evil and I can't be trusted because of the flesh that I'm in. And, you know, that leads people to hate themselves in so many ways, whether it's when you're sitting down for an amazing meal and you can't even let yourself enjoy it because what if I overeat? What if I mess up because I'm terrible? Or when you're having a sexual experience, you know, even if you're married to somebody, you know, we still can hate ourselves because our flesh is evil not to be trusted. So is that something you get into in your church as well? Like I wonder your messages on the flesh and the more like, human aspects of walking through this life so we 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 try to hit these values on a regular basis you know i i did a series on them at the toward the end of last year but try to incorporate them so that no matter what we're talking about we're reinforcing these values that you are beloved that there you that being human is good and that you're being invited to step into that and i I definitely agree with you i I grew up in true love weights culture yay (laughs) yeah Uh, and then after that, it was uh, Joshua Harris. I kissed dating goodbye. Yeah. And so I, I, I talked to so many people who are, you know, around my age, who their entire upbringing was sending them a message that everything that you enjoy or want is bad. And you're bad for want, even almost wanting it or, or trying to enjoy it. And it has created so many wounds. And I do think progressive Christianity has a much more um, human positive, sex positive message that people can, can obviously with therapists and all those other things we need, um, can begin to find some healing from. But it, it really is. And I really believe the people who brought me up that way were trying, doing the best they could. Yeah. I do. I believe, I don't believe they were like, Hey, let's screw these kids up. And then, you know, 25 years, they'll be on a podcast talking about how good a job (laughs) they did. I don't think that's what's going on, but I I think it was the unintended consequence is that it gave everybody messages that got stuck in their heads and hearts. And it really, really, really hurt a lot of people. Yeah. Well, it even goes beyond that to me. It's like every experience in life. Like I remember, um, listening to Bjork 
and feeling like the divine and feeling all of these beautiful things and thinking all these deep thoughts that I never thought before at 12 years old or whatever. And then throwing out the CD in the garbage because the pastor was like, you can't have any secular music. So those sorts of things are just like, wait, no, I was though experiencing the divine in this, from this source that you're telling me the divine couldn't possibly reside in. It's like, no, the divine did reside there and I was experiencing it and I was robbed of it because, you know, we quantify and qualify what's sin and what's okay. And like you said, so many things that are simply under the category of pleasure, whatever that may be, whether it's sensual pleasure, and by sensual, I mean something hitting your ear that brings you close Mm -hmm. to the divine or going into a waterfall on a Sunday and missing church and, and feeling more connected to God than you had in that building. Those things were all like, no, you're sinning. You feel good. It's probably not good. (laughs) If you enjoy it, it's going to send you straight to hell. Exactly. So I think it's interesting that you are talking about in this church of like, live your life to the fullest. And, um, and then I wonder for any dissenting voices or people that are, you know, fearing that or saying, see, this is the problem with progressive Christianity. Like, where are you going to draw the line? If I'm suddenly not having to throw out all my secular CDs and suddenly I can skip church on a Sunday to see a waterfall, then, you know, can't I just go to a bar and hook up with whoever I want to? And that's also totally fine at your church. You know, like, where do you draw the line? And I'm curious how you present that to the congregation. Yeah, I mean, so just my response to some of that would be, I think that when it comes to human sexuality, there are, it's it's far more complicated conversation than the one we grew up with, which was just, you know, anything is bad. Yeah. Right? There, there are ways to talk about consent and there are ways to talk about something that is mutually beneficial. And so there are all these other categories and there's some great, some, uh, some great new books that have come out. Uh, I think uh, Bromley Clanahan, I think is her name, but she wrote a book called good Christian sex. Oh. It's a sex positive book and uh, talks about how Christians can, can in- engage their sexuality and yet do it in ways that are just and good. And so I, I think that those are important things obviously to deal with. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about how, how does progressive Christianity get taken seriously by the other streams, right? Because, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times people have said, commented on my stuff on the internet and said, oh, well, you know, we don't believe, he doesn't believe in the Bible anyway. Um, I'm actually a Bible nerd. I love mm. the Bible so much. Mm. Um, but I think, so I think for a progressive Christianity, we have to be able to articulate these sort of things, like I think people look from the outside in and think, well, they don't talk about the Bible. They don't use the Bible. They don't talk about the cross of Jesus. They don't talk about, no, I think we have to find ways to articulate. Actually, we do believe the cross of Jesus is significant, not because it makes you somehow right with God, that God killed an innocent person, but, but because you see the depth of love that God in Jesus isn't making his enemies pay, but he's willing to bear even their insults as he's dying, right? Like there's, there's ways of talking about this. There's ways of talking at the Bible as, as a sacramental gift, which is a place where we can connect with the divine um, without having to talk about inerrancy and infallibility. So I think progressive Christianity, one of the things, and some of the work I'm currently working on is trying to find ways to articulate our message that takes seriously all the things that our conservative counterparts would take seriously, 
but reframing them, reframing them and then also reclaiming them um, for a more just and generous and compassionate, you know, faith, however you want yeah. to describe that. So I think it's actually the absolute necessary work of this next stage of whatever progressive Christianity becomes. We have to really begin to articulate those things. Mm, I really love that. There is this next phase of how do we get people to understand that we're not just throwing out the baby with the bathwater and being irresponsible and saying, do whatever you want, that there is still so much accountability. Like I keep telling people, I have far more sexual accountability now being a progressive Christian than I ever did as a really strict evangelical because the rules that I have with my sexuality, the list just got 50 times bigger because you are adding consent and other people and, you know, all these other facets of it that you never considered before beyond no, 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 wear a white dress, say yes, now go on with your life. So I don't know. Do you have any idea what the next step is to, like you said, be taken more seriously or to invite people into a space where they might feel safe to consider that we're not just trying to destroy God's message and make it cool and popular and palatable? You know, I I think for me, one of the ways I try to do that with folks is through reclaiming scripture, reclaiming the Bible, reclaiming, but also and I wouldn't say changing the interpretation, I would say through understanding context and history, getting down to a uh, interpretation that our ancestors would probably have had. Right. Um, and then, so, because uh, I do think that matters and, and showing that, look, we're, we're not saying, it's, this is not hedonism. We're actually saying that as a part of our faith, a tenet of our faith is that we have to be aware of the needs and the suffering around us because God is always found among the poor and the suffering. And that's where you'll find, find the, the deepest realities of God among those people who are suffering and oppressed. And so, you know, our faith is making us think about how, how do we live on this planet without destroying it? How do we make sure we leave something to hand down to our, our, our children and our grandchildren? And oh my gosh, what about the way we're using power? And is that really the highest value that we can have is to just everything else doesn't matter. Let's just get all the power we can. So I think for me, it is when people make those comments is to say, gosh, that's not been my experience of my faith at all. That it's just sort of anything goes, let let me, let me give you a couple examples of how this progressive Christian lens has actually called me into a deeper conviction. A couple summers ago, Grace Point had about 40 people left. Um, and we've seen a ton of growth over the last year. And the group of people we're growing the most with are people in their 20s to mid-30s. Wow. People who aren't supposed to be going to church. Yeah, the ones that are exiting in droves. Yeah. yeah. And what I think they're finding is, I mean, you, don't, you won't find a fog machine at Grace Point. You'll find great, great music. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you have to bring your own fog machine. You don't provide it. Um, but you'll find really, really amazing music that you can sing with both your head and your heart. But you also, it's, you know, I think that we're trying to, we take this seriously. We take our faith seriously. We take our calling and responsibility the, to, to share love and to leave the world better. We take those very seriously. And so for me, the way we do that is both say it and embody it. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not just one or the other. It's, it's not just saying it well, but it's also being able to put it in flesh and blood and put it into the world. 
Beautiful. I love it. Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts or things you'd like to share? Uh, no, I, I, so, but I'll say I'm so honored to have been on here for this discussion. And um, I've listened to a couple podcasts you've been on and a couple of your videos, and I just think you're doing great work. Oh, thank such, you. Such needed work. So. Thank you. I mean, vice versa. I'm so encouraged to find your church. And my prayer is that other people that are about to step in this space, you know, it's so risky when you talk, um, you speak with so much courage when you were talking to the church in Tennessee and saying, listen, I have these convictions and I may lose my job. Like, I don't know what situation you're in. You could lose your house, your job, your finance, you know, you have a family to support. A lot of really well-intentioned, beautiful leaders and pastors are in a place where they might lose it all if they make this transition and outwardly say, we're ready to move into this new space. So I just pray that your example will encourage other people that it can work out and that God is going to bless you if you do make this move of faith and just say, we're going to, you know, transition into something that we believe in. And I do believe there's a problem. I'm sure, but I do believe there's a crop of people just waiting to bang down that door. You know, if if your church was down the street, I'd see you on Sunday and I'd be there every week. You know, I don't have that here and I really need someone to create it here. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll say this too. One of the great things about Grace Point is as a pastor, I don't feel any, I have any of that. Like I've got to be perfect. Um, wonderful actually just talked about in a sermon last week we were talking about rhythm and sabbath and sort of the way i started was i i don't do this well and so in this series i'm going to talk about things that i don't do well (laughs) amazing we're going to try to figure out maybe if we can find a a sustainable way for us to do them together amazing and and i think that's you know there's a freedom there to be able to say gosh i don't i don't have it figured out but we can let's take another step together and see where we end up um, but, you know, I talk to pastors all the time who are either making this leap or are on the edge, hoping, wondering, you know, am I going to survive it? And it's hard. And there are all sorts of repercussions. Yeah. But being able to go to sleep at night, knowing that what you're saying is congruent with what you believe at the deepest level of who you are. And that believing that however long I have to do this work, that I really hope I'm going to leave the world better than I found it. And people will feel more loved than they did. And people will feel more beloved. And I mean, that's, it's totally worth Mm. all of the potential consequence. I mean, love is never the wrong choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And God will bless it. Every time I've stepped out in faith and done something, as long as it was aligned with love and not fear, It always works out. So I really hope you all enjoyed this conversation. If anyone has interest, they do upload sermons on gracepoint.net. So that's gracepoint with an E dot net. And then you can find Josh at Joshua Adam Scott on Twitter and Instagram. So go follow him. And that's it. We love you all. all. God God bless. bless.